The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? When Zhengzhou, home to the world's largest iPhone factory, locked down recently, some of its factory workers had nowhere to go. Hoping to escape COVID restrictions, many of them walked miles along motorways to their hometowns, their journey captured by video and shared on social media in China and out. This episode is all about China's migrant working class, poorly paid and often poorly educated people from the countryside who go to cities like Zhengzhou for better lives. There are hundreds of millions of these so-called internal migrants, making their story an important part to understand if you want to understand modern China. What are their lives like? I'm joined today by UCLA's Professor Cindy Fan, an expert in migration and population patterns. Cindy, thanks so much for coming on to Chinese Whispers. First of all, I just wanted to check the numbers with you, because I saw one estimate that there were 250 million internal migrants in China in 2015. At that point, that was a sixth of the population. Is that number still up to date? Well, yeah, first of all, Cindy, it's really wonderful to, to be on your program. And to your question, yes, there are various estimates that people have come up with, but 250 million sounds about right. And I would say that between 2015 and now, that number may have actually increased even some more. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is just an incredibly large population because I'm speaking to you from London and that's more than four times the population of the UK. And these are people, I, I want to talk in this episode about how they live, what jobs they do, what has driven them to have this kind of lifestyle. So first, I guess, are they mainly rural people, people from China's vast countryside looking for higher earnings in the cities? Yes, well, I mean, we talked about migrants. So I guess one fundamental question is what what does it mean as a migrant in China? And the hukou system is a sort of an instrument of the government, of the Chinese government, to register people in terms of where they are. And so migrants are, in general, those individuals who are living in a place that is not where they're registered. So I think that aspect is important to to know. And you're also right to say that the majority of these migrants, the majority of the people in China who are living in a place where they're not registered are from the rural areas seeking work from urban areas. And and most of the work that they, they do belong to categories that are you know, manual labor or labor-intensive kind of work, say in factories, or work that urban people in general don't want to do. So like recycling, cleaning, you know, sweeping the streets, sanitation workers, things like that. So in that sense, it's not too different from immigrants all over the world when they arrive, you know, in a in the host country, oftentimes their access to the labor market is quite limited. And so they pick up jobs that local people don't want to do. 
and it's really driven by poverty a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Because because earnings are higher in the cities, even though they're doing these kind of menial work that city dwellers don't want to do. Well, China over the last several decades has been really successful, eliminating extreme poverty. But but that said, there's still quite a bit of income gap between rural and urban areas. I think the latest estimate is that on every urban residents are making at least more than two and a half times the level of income as uh, an average rural resident. So that's a big gap. Mm. And that that gap is not really narrowing or at least not narrowing in a significant way. So as someone living in a village in China, your opportunities to you know make a living are pretty limited and make a comfortable living are pretty limited. I mean, you could probably get by, but if you want to send your children to college, if you wanted to, you know, buy something nice, you really need to access income sources other than what's near to you, right? So what's near to you is the farmland. You know, you can farm. You may be able to go to a nearby uh, township or nearby city to work, but still the income level is very, very low. And so as a result, urban jobs are a lot more attractive you know, to rural residents. But to access urban jobs means that you have to go there. You have to move there. And these urban areas, especially urban areas that have jobs that pay higher, uh, usually not in the small cities, for example, right? So a lot of times, therefore, Chinese villages have to go afar. They have to go to bigger cities in order to access a bigger job market. And that means they have to migrate. And that means they have to leave their families behind. Yeah, absolutely. You've already mentioned this system of hukou, registration, household registration. It's something that comes up again and again on this podcast, often in peripheral ways. But this is the perfect opportunity to really talk about it. Because I think the idea that moving between city and city or village to city in one country and being counted as a migrant it's quite an alien notion I think to a lot of the west you know you're in America I'm in the UK where you know if you're moving between city to city you're not necessarily a migrant you're you're just still an American or a British person whatever it is so let's talk about that registration which defines a them and us why is it in place yes Cindy I think the way that you've approached this is very interesting speaking about you know, like who is a migrant and what you said about the concept of us versus them, right? Or, or, or they are they are not us. I think this concept is extremely important and also it's very actually key to our understanding migrants in general, but also migrants in China. I mean, allow me to kind of think about it or talk about it in the U.S. context a little bit, right? So in the U.S., there are migrants. Of course, there are international migrants to the U.S. from other countries, mm-hmm. like from Mexico, for example. But there are also migrants within the country and how do we define migrants within the U.S. context? And that is, in general, the census, for example, would define a migrant as somebody who has crossed a, a county line. So the question is, where did you live five years ago? If five years ago you lived in a different county than you're living now, you're actually considered a migrant in the U.S. context. But that said, they are not really discriminated against, like in China. So in, in a Chinese context, the hukou system, so let, let us go back to your question, and that is the hukou system. What, what is it all about? Well, historically, the idea of registering people 
has been around for many, many years in China, hundreds and hundreds of years. And that's also the case in other countries like Vietnam, for example, Russia, for example. They've also really for a long time had have had a registration system. So there's this origin, historical origin. But then in the late 1950s, the People's Republic of China became, you know, the the new regime, right, in 1949. And in the late 1950s, the government decided to actually formalize the registration system into a hukou system. And what the word hukou means basically just means household registration. So when someone is born, you're born into a household, and the book, I mean, at that time, it was actually literally a book, (laughs) a booklet, a booklet that's associated with this household would list the names of people that belong to this household, right? Okay, so if you're born in in the rural area, you're born into a rural household, and, and so automatically you are registered as a rural person, okay? Conversely, in the urban areas, when you're born in the urban areas, you automatically recognize and register as an urban person. But not only that, not only that there is this destination of rural and urban, but you're also associated with a particular place. And that is important because say large cities, you know, offer more benefits than smaller cities in general. So it's also a benefit and advantage to be born into a place that offers more benefits such as, you know, housing, subsidies, healthcare, education, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the relationship between hukou and, and migration is this, that when the hukou system was first set up, the assumption was that people do not move. <laughs> and it is indeed the case that for thousands of years, the Chinese have been immobile. They were not known for moving from one place to another. They were sort of assumed to stay in or near their place of birth for, for life, right? So in that context, the hukou makes sense because mm-hmm. there's information that a government could use to, say, allocate resources because people didn't move. But all of these changed since the 1980s when the Chinese economic reforms took place. As a result of the economic reforms, um, there were a lot of jobs in the industrial sector, in the urban sector. And these sectors, when they grew, they needed labor, They needed labor-intensive supply of labor, whereas at the same time, the rural areas had a large population. At that time, the Chinese population was primarily, uh, majority of the Chinese population was rural. And so you've got the demand on one side from the urban and industrial sector. You've got the supply on the other side that is from the countryside. And also the Chinese sort of society had been a bit more relaxed in terms of mobility, So that contributed to the large number of migrants from rural and urban areas. But this migration is a challenge to the hukou system because now all of a sudden people are mobile. People are not staying where they were born. But the hukou system continues to function as it was designed to to function. And so we have this this challenge of the reality, you know, the system or the, you know, the legislation, the policy couldn't quite keep up to the reality. Mm. Can I ask you to illustrate, you know, that, that heroic explanation of the Hugo <laughs> system? Can I ask you to illustrate it a little bit more with examples? So I guess what I'm trying to ask is, in cities, you've already mentioned the 
better educational opportunities, better healthcare. So what does the Huko system actually do to differentiate between the urban residents and the migrant people coming in? That's a good question. So what does it actually mean having an urban Huko, for example? Right? Being defined as an urban citizen, what does that actually mean? Well, actually, let me start with rural citizens. So if you have a rural Huko, you have access to farmland. Okay. And that's sort of your source of livelihood. Okay. And because you're farming, you know, so you have your source of food supply. Maybe you can sell your crops. So you have access to land. Okay. Which is important. Now, as an urban citizen, however, you're not expected to have access to land or to farming, but you are expected to have access to state sponsored subsidies and support and benefits, as I mentioned, such as education, housing, healthcare, and even jobs in the beginning, you know, of the People's Republic of China, jobs were actually allocated by the government. Everything was allocated by the government. It was a very centrally planned society at that time. So supposedly urban citizens would be taken care of from cradle to grave, right? They didn't earn much, but because there was so much sort of benefits that they could have access to, either free or at a very low cost then nobody would be very, very wealthy, but everybody, at least in theory, would be sort of taken care of in terms of their livelihood, in terms of what they need on a daily basis. In the rural areas, it's completely different. It, it is that you have access to farmland, and that's your source of livelihood. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And so what we're seeing then when we're coming for this rural migrants going into the cities for better lives is that if they don't have the huko of the local city that they're moving to, they don't actually access the same services when it comes to education, healthcare and other things that the city residents, the technical city residents do. So are they essentially second class citizens? They are very much so second-class citizens. And uh, like you said, because they don't have the urban hookah, so when they are working in the cities, they do have income coming from their jobs. But other than that, you know, if they get hurt, if they get injured at work or elsewhere, oftentimes they have to go back to their village, to the countryside to access healthcare because urban healthcare would be simply too expensive for them. Mm. They don't have, you know, the status to access local low-cost healthcare. Similarly, if they bring their children to the cities, their children may not be able to go to public schools the same way that urban children can, or they might need to pay a higher fee. And so a lot of times that's the reason why they leave behind their children in the countryside you know, for schooling. So those are just two examples, but there are many other examples. Even the job market is not completely open mm. right, to the rural migrants. I mean, some jobs, especially government jobs, would specify that only people that have a hookah of a certain place can apply. This is especially the case for large cities like Beijing and Shanghai. So the job market is very segregated. And as a migrant, you are really very much treated as a second-class citizens. You don't have access to you know, all the benefits that urban citizens do. I mean, I just have so many questions about that because it seems so inherently unfair. And I, I say this as someone who has urban hukou when I was a Chinese citizen. I was born in Nanjing, a tier two city, and lucky enough to have urban hukou. And growing up, hukou was always something that, you know, my family obsessed over, but I didn't really understand why. And I, I've never seen the kind of underbelly of the city. But, you know, just, just one question I have is, Cindy, you've talked about these jobs that the migrant workers do. They seem like very important jobs, especially because you're 
wealthier city residents don't want to do them. So they seem pretty necessary to the functioning of a modern Chinese society, city. And so why are they not given more rights then in that case? Because it's not as if the city doesn't want them there. It, it needs them. It relies on them. And yet it's making their lives hard to live. Well, you know, you're very correct that I think many of the Chinese cities have been built really because of the migrants, right? The high-rise skyscrapers, you know, the Olympic stadiums, for example, in Beijing, the bird's nest, the water cube uh, that are so much the landmarks of the Beijing Olympics in 2008. I mean, they imported, well, I, I use the word imported, but they recruited so many migrants from the rural areas in order to build these big structures. And that's just a, one of the many examples of how the Chinese cities came into being precisely because they had access to migrant workers. And the, so the cities do need migrant workers. But I think the cities, uh, the city governments, do realize that these migrants are coming. They do realize mm -hmm. that these migrants are attracted to cities. And as a result, I don't think that they worry about not having migrant workers coming to cities. And I believe that's also the motivation for not really changing the system as much as they should. And, you know, this, I think this is also quite political. You know, there's vested interest on the part of the urban citizens. You know, why would urban citizens want to give up or want to share, not necessarily give mm -hmm. up, but want to share the benefits that they have? It's going to be costly to the city governments if everyone who comes to the city has the same rights, has the same benefits as the urban citizens. Now, in that sense, I'm drawing somewhat of an analogy that may not be extremely, <laughs> extremely accurate here. But for example, in, in the U.S., out-of-state citizens in the U.S., and I'm talking about citizens, not international migrants, right? So when they come to a new state, Okay. They may or may not to immediately have the same benefits and access the same service as the residents of, of the state, of the hosting state, until maybe later. And then one example is education, right? So, for example, higher education. Mm -hmm. So, for example, out-of-state residents that come to, say, the University of California, right? They will have to pay out-of-state tuition, which is higher than the tuition paid by the state residents. Now, is it unfair? It may be unfair. But at the same time, taxpayers in the state of California would say that, well, you know, we pay tax to the state. And so we should enjoy some benefits that out-of-state residents can enjoy or shouldn't enjoy until they pay tax or until they've been here for a long time. So this is not an exact yeah. comparison, but there are cases around the world in which sort of migrants uh, don't necessarily have access to the same benefits as local residents do. I'm saying this not to defend the hukou system. This is important to clarify. But I'm also saying this just because I know urban res residents in China, so many of them are not necessarily sympathetic to the fact that the hukou system should change in such a way that they might lose some of their benefits. No, I understand. And you have a similar thing in the UK as well, where Scottish students going to university will have slightly cheaper fees than English students and all these sort of things that are almost at some point administrative rather than about unfairness. But I wondered how much possibility is there to be mobile within this system? You know, can how does a rural migrant become or receive urban hukou if they wanted to? 
Well, I'm so glad you asked this question because I think so far our discussion has been on uh, the constraints of the hukou system. And in fact, over the last several decades, the hukou system has been relaxed quite a bit. And especially in uh, smaller cities because they need labor and they're not as attractive in general as, say, Beijing, Shanghai and Guangzhou. And so many cities actually have relaxed their hukou system to the extent that as a rural migrant, you know, after, say, staying there for some months or some years or after, you purchase, if you have the means, purchase an apartment, you know, in a small city, you're automatically granted the hukou of that city. So that has been the case. Oh, okay. That has been a case across China, especially in smaller cities. Now, the question is, however, whether this is attractive enough to rural migrants for them to give up their rural hukou. Mm. So that's an aspect of the hukou system that has not been widely reported, although there's been some research, including my own studies, that show that rural migrants you know, are pretty smart. Okay, they, yes, they are, in a sense, they are victims of the hukou system because when they go to large cities, they don't enjoy the same benefits as urban citizens there. But at the same time, I think rural migrants are also weighing their options and they're also strategizing. They're not simply passive. You know, there's a certain level of, of constraints, probably a high level of constraints on, on their part in terms of what opportunities they have. But within those constraints, I think rural migrants are, are actually trying to, you know, make the best out of multiple worlds. And these multiple worlds consist of both their origins, rural origins and, and urban locations. So back to the question of, yes, the hukou system has been somewhat relaxed and is the hukou in small cities attractive enough to rural citizens? And I think the answer is not clear at the moment because there are studies to show that rural migrants actually, uh, rather than giving up the rural hukou, they're not necessarily you know, rushing to get an herbal hukou because that will yeah. entail they're giving up the rural hukou. And hanging on to the rural hukou, it's important to some rural migrants because urban jobs are never really very stable. Okay, So the rural hukou could be their insurance policy, right? Mm. If something goes wrong, like during COVID, economic downturn, right? they could choose to return to the countryside. And if they do so, then at least they have farmland. They have the farmland as a source of livelihood. It's not the most attractive source of livelihood, but, you know, it's subsistence. It's still an asset. Yeah. So it's, this is another sort of wrinkle to our understanding of Foucault system. It's not one size fits all. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and that empowers this group of people, doesn't it, in, in a narrative, because you're right, they're, they're being savvy. They're choosing what's best for them, for their family, and depending on what part of life they're in as well. And I think it's a question of roots as well, whether or not you want to keep that rural hukou. Because in your research, I was interested in, it's often a topic that comes up, is that these people are sending money back to their to their home villages. They've got family that they're, that they're still supporting elderly parents, perhaps young children, partners. They're not looking to migrate to the cities full time, or permanently, I mean. They are actually looking to ha- improve their lives back home, and this is a temporary thing for them. So I wondered if we can talk about this practice of leaving people behind. Could you just give us an idea of what that's like? Because people talk about left-behind children, left-behind parents, left-behind partners. Yes, yes, yes. So I think you touched upon one thing that is really important, and that is their migration temporary or permanent. And what we know is that 
since the 1980s, there have been so many migrants that went to the cities and they, they go back and forth rather than just giving up, right, their rural mm. livelihood or their rural identity and, and everything there. Rather, they go back and forth instead. And so they practice something that is referred to as circular migration, right? And why is it that they go back and forth? Well, partly is because urban livelihood is never really very secure to them. But at the same time, you know, they need the um, income from urban areas, as you mentioned, to send back remittances to support the family and, and so on. And so leaving behind somebody, especially especially in the early period of the large waves of migration, especially in the 1980s and 1990s, is usually the men that were going to the cities, leaving behind wives. Now, increasingly, they've been joined by women, by wives, especially when their children are a little older. And it is always a challenge to bring children to the city, though. I think I mentioned earlier that education is an issue. And also, it might be also a challenge to bring older people, right, They're the elderly, to the city because of healthcare. So the two sort of segments of the rural population that are most likely to be left behind right now are children and the elderly. Mm. Well, the elderly, if they're healthy enough, could be the ones that take care of the children. So there's also that aspect, right, of care, of who's providing care. If those who have left the countryside are going to the cities to work, they are not able to care for the elderly or the children. So the elderly and children left behind to care for themselves. And if the elderly are able to care for the children, then, then they, they pick up the caregiving function. And this has been going on for decades. So it's not a temporary mm. thing in a sense. And so in my work, I've argued that it's really important to take seriously this phenomenon of split households as a strategy, but also as a problem, right? Because what does that mean to children who don't really see their parents for a year or even longer in some cases? What does it mean if children are raised by their grandparents and not by their parents? I think that has contributed to social problems, emotional problems on the part of the children. But at the same time, there's also research that shows that because of the remittances sent back from their parents, the children have better supplies, you know, they have a better house to live in. So economically, they may be better off, but emotionally, it's a big burden on both them the children, their grandparents and their parents. Mm. And I also think as a structure that is made easier by the family structure in China in general, that grandparents are happy in general to take care of grandchildren as long as they're physically capable of doing. I think it's not a thing that a lot of cultures necessarily <laughs> share with that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm not sure. I can't speak for them whether they're happy or not. But... <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think what you mentioned is that it is... Very true that I think in China and also I think in general, I think in Asian societies, right, this concept of extended family and the practice of extended family is still much stronger than in the West in general, yeah. right? So like you said, if grandparents are capable, then, you know, whether they're happy or not, I think there is a sense of responsibility. There's a sense that, you know, if their children who are migrant workers have the need, they will provide that need. You know, they will step up to yeah. the plate and they would do it, even though it is at a burden on, on them. Yeah. And that is something that when I was reading your research, I, I was kind of surprised by. I mean, I, as I already mentioned on this podcast, you know, I've come from an urban background. I do feel like a little bit guilty about not knowing more about how the other half live, as it were. And I was surprised by the demographics of some migrant workers because 
I guess I assumed that they would be quite young, you know, people in their twenties or thirties with lots of energy, start of their lives, trying to go out there to make a life for themselves. But actually, what was interesting in your research was you talked about this kind of group of people who, when their children are a little bit older, a little bit more self-sustaining, they then, as parents in their forties and fifties, go out there and do this kind of backbreaking work, which. I found that really interesting because I hadn't quite thought about just how wide the demographic age is. Because there are also, of course, those twenty and thirty somethings that I've talked about. They're also going out there. Yeah, that that's a good question, and that is the age range is actually very very large. You mentioned the forties, fifties. I know of people who who are in their fifties. You know, as they're still migrant workers in the city. And in fact, in the beginning of this large waves of migration in the eighties and nineties. It could be that you know people in their thirties, forties, fifties all went out just because there's opportunities, just because there was so much poverty in in the countryside. But there's certainly a generational difference, though. That generation that went out as the first wave of migrants, they've already been farmers. They already had farming experience, right? So they went out because really of the fact that there was just so much poverty, right? And also, there's another interesting dimension that we haven't had a chance to talk about, and that is in the, in the Chinese countryside. In order for son to get married, <laughs> they really have to show to prospective mates that they, you know, they have the economic sort of they have the source of livelihood to provide to the wife. And increasingly, having a big house is an important thing. And to just to build a house or just to Renovate a house to add a second story, for example, right? To to have the room to support a family, because you you're talking about several generations work,、uh, living together under one roof. Oftentimes, it's the father who would go out to the cities to work and earn back remittances that would then fund the、uh, renovation or the building of of a house. So, so that is an important dimension as well. In in addition to subsistence, in addition to just You know, putting food on table, but the newer generation of migrants are much younger, and also they are very different from the older generation of migrants in the sense that you know they would go to school and and maybe they would、uh, finish high school or junior high school, and then they would go out. Now, so this group of people, this generation, has never really done farming to the extent that their previous gen, older generation had. Okay, so、mm. you're talking about. Somebody growing up, seeing their parents, seeing their uncles and aunts, seeing other villagers go out to work, and that becomes your career. <laughs> that becomes your career path. You know that when you are sixteen, when you are eighteen, you will join them. Okay. So as a result, well, at the same time, the older migrants continue to be in the migrant labor force, and therefore, if you look at the entire migrant labor force, it's all the way from sixteen to maybe even sixties. So the age range is very big. What was so interesting when I was reading about your research on this was how, despite this generational change, gender roles hadn't changed much. That women were often still expected to be the caregivers. If you were one of two siblings and you're a woman, and the other one is a boy, they're more likely to be the one that your parents put you through school. And you know, as as you've written about female migrants, when they're out in the workforce, when they're in these cities, they're still having to take care of their husbands who are also in the workforce. <laughs> so I think that's also very interesting. Is that a is that a thing that you think is is changing at all now, or do you think that gender norms, just because of poverty, are still Very solidly there. Yeah, gender norms and gender ideology are extremely persistent. I would say, 
in Chinese society, both in rural and urban societies. And this is despite the fact that women's access to education has really increased over the decades. And so I think I mentioned the fact that when migration was possible, but when migrant work was possible, initially it was usually the husband, it was usually the man who access migrant work and even behind wives and other women in the family. And right now, you know, women are very highly represented in the migrant labor force as well. But that doesn't mean that within the household, the division of labor has changed very much. So in fact, there are wives and there are women who join the husbands in the cities, but they are not necessarily doing, you know, migrant work as much as their husbands, but they are there to wash clothes for them. They're there to cook for them. (laughs) So there's still a very sort of persistent concept of what is considered women's work and what is considered men's work. Uh, This is the case in the workplace. This is also the case in the family. So you're quite right that I'm not seeing much evidence that traditional gender roles and gender norms have changed. And especially, you know, in the period of the one-child family, in a period of very strict birth control policy, even though that policy has relaxed in recent years. But for the longest time, right, the urban Chinese family can only have one child. And the rural Chinese family may be able to have you know, more than one children. But if they have two children, if one is a boy and one is a girl, oftentimes the educational opportunities are given to the boy. And if resources are limited, then oftentimes the daughter is expected to work in order to earn money to support her brother. So that is actually Mm -hmm. considered to be acceptable, not only acceptable, but preferable. And so that's an example to show that the Chinese society is still very, very gendered and women and girls are still very much disadvantaged in terms of their opportunities. And that's partly because of this other gendered notion, isn't there, that once you're a woman and you're married to a man, you don't belong to your natal family anymore, you belong to the family that you've married into. So then you've got parents thinking, there's that phrase in Chinese that, what is it, that daughters are spilt water? Is that the way, how, how it is? Yeah, portal to the shui. Yes. So you can't take it back. You know, once they're married, they're gone. They're not yours anymore. They're going to be looking after their husband's parents, not you. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's something like daughters are water spilled out. That, yeah, it's, I mean, literally you can actually see a mother, right, carrying a container, just splashing the water into the street. So that, unfortunately, that's how women are described. That's how daughters are described, especially in rural areas. So I I think that is more true in rural areas and urban areas. And you refer to the locational aspect of it. And that is when a daughter gets married, she is expected to then join the husband's family, you know, physically, literally, also in terms of membership, right? And so Mm. she then belongs, so to speak, to the husband's family, rather to the natal, her natal family. Of course, when Chinese society was primarily agrarian, that really carried very practical significance. And that is the husband's family would now gain one more person who can work in a farm, whereas the daughter's natal family loses somebody, loses a worker. Mm. (laughs) And now this is not as significant. This fact is not as significant now. But still, the notion that the membership has changed means that, yeah, you raise a daughter, but what is it going to do? What What is daughter going to do for you <laughs> after she gets married? She's not going to help you in any way, right? So unfortunately, this has been, you know, kind of a, a basis, but it has become a tradition. 
And so having a, a boy, having having a son is still considered to be a better outcome than having a daughter. And of course, a son also can carry the name of the family forward. So there is also this lineage consideration. Mm. And just as an aside on that, Cindy, I mean, you've already hinted at this, that the one child policy wasn't applied universally. And I think this is something that's often lost as well, because in urban areas, the one child policy was absolutely one child before, I mean, before 2016. But even then, in rural areas, am I right in thinking if you had your first child as a daughter, you were then able to have another boy as long as you were Han, and obviously ethnic minorities had different rules. So some rural families often had two children. Right, yes. So I think the one it's, it's important to clarify that the one-child policy was officially lifted. I think it was around 2016 or so. But even during the one-child policy in rural areas, the families, most families would be able to have two children, in fact. And, you know, the example that you give, if you have a daughter as your first child and you are able to have a son, that is probably almost universally true in the countryside. But you know, in the countryside, it was also the case that is very localized. The enforcement of the one-child policy was also very mm. localized. So if your village is able to kind of relax the one-child policy even more, then oftentimes you are able to have two children, or maybe in some cases, even more than two children. Right. The mountains are high and the emperor's far away. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and Cindy, just finally, I want to talk about that instability that you've already mentioned, which I think has come out so painfully during the pandemic in the last few years. I mean, only recently we're seeing images of these migrant workers coming out of Zhengzhou, which is going under lockdown. And instead of being locked down in their factories making iPhones, they just want to go home. So I wondered if we can talk a little bit about what the pandemic has been like for migrant workers. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked this question because I think like, you know, in in other parts of the world, whenever there is a shock to the system, and of course the pandemic is a shock or serious economic downturn, is usually the disadvantaged segment of the population that gets the worst hit, right? So the same case is true for migrant workers in China. During COVID, they've been the ones that have been most vulnerable for a lot of reasons. One is that their jobs are not stable, first of all. And the kind of jobs that they've been doing really do not allow them to work from home, right? <laughs> you know, they are the restaurant workers, they are the they're street sweepers, they're the construction workers, they cannot do any of that work from home. Unlike many urban res- residents, they can still work at home even during lockdown, because, some of them anyway, because of what they do. So just on that basis, the migrant workers are much more disadvantaged. Also, they lost a lot of jobs. They're, all these restaurants, you know, all these hotels and, and construction work sites have been closed. But I would say that some of the migrant workers have been also quite creative in terms of changing jobs, right? So yes, you can't go to restaurants, but you get food delivered to your home. So many of the migrant workers became delivery workers, and some of them actually worked as COVID workers, right? So going from door to door, making sure that people comply, you know, uh, taking tests and things like that, because that kind of job is also considered, you know, not that desirable, not jobs that urban citizens in general want to do and carry a lot of stigma. And so migrant workers, some of them are able to pick up those jobs. That said, they are still in a very precarious situation. You refer to the Zenzhou situation. Well, the migrant workers want to leave, but there's no transportation. So everything is locked down. So they end up having to walk. 
on the highways, and that is very very sad. And I also know that some migrant workers have to sleep in parks. You know, they're、mm-hmm. literally becoming homeless because there's no place for them to return to. Yeah, absolutely. And and I hope the situation gets gets better in future lockdowns, but maybe not. But for now, Cindy Fan, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you so much, Cindy. It's a pleasure. And、if you like what we do here, you might be interested in the Chinese Whispers newsletter that I will be launching in the near future. Sign up for free at spectator.co.uk/whispers, and you'll be getting regular updates from me on the most interesting political and cultural news from China, as well as, of course, a smattering of history. That's spectator.co.uk/whispers.